0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Peoples and Things, where we explore human life with technology. I'm Lee Vinsel. so many nifty and scenic roads into the book we're covering in today's episode got my little map out here Whew. let's see here which route should we take oh look here's one marked provocative is that is that French or something Provocative. it has a ring to it doesn't it yes let's go that way my experience in life is that there are some alleyways in academia where you find very juvenile conceptions of corporate power. You know, I mean the kind of folks who assume corporations are evil and are to blame for a lot of things in the world, but then you ask them a question like, okay, but have you done any work to examine the structure of the industry around Company X or or you know, like looked at any basic markers of its financial health, or even like read its annual reports? and you receive blank stares. And then within that set of dark alleys, and oh my God, dear listeners, the darkness I brave just for you, just for you. I won't even go into it. It's just so frightening and troubling. Within that set of dark alleys, there's a smaller set of even darker places where people act like corporations have a lot of control over what we think. Like we are all dupes for advertisements or something. And the people who make up corporations have definitely done some terrible things in the world and throughout history. I mean, that's what my first book was about. And many multinational corporations have like neo-colonialist relationships with poor nations around the world. But sometimes you bump into the presumption that corporations can just push their products on local populations in countries other than their home ones. And that just doesn't seem right uh, in many cases. I think there are many interesting things to learn from historian Paula Dela Cruz Fernandez's book, Gendered Capitalism, Sewing Machines, and Multinational Business in Spain and Mexico 1850 to 1940. Cruz Fernandez wears several different hats in the world. She works for the Business History Conference, the History Department at the University of Florida, and is co-editor in chief of the New Books Network in Español. And uh, as you know, we too are part of the New Books Network, so it's a nice little collection, connection to make here. Cruz Fernandez's book is neat in many ways, but what I really like is how she shows that selling sewing machines was not a top-down process by which an American corporation forced its products on unwilling consumers, but a complex development that involved collective entrepreneurship, and most importantly, the dreams, ideals, and efforts of women who worked with sewing machines in the home. The book raises larger questions about how we think about processes of technology adoption in different cultures, and about the relationship between corporations and consumers i hope you enjoy our conversation it was a lot of fun for me and hey get excited much for taking the time to talk to me today
1: thank you for inviting me it's a pleasure i love your podcast i love the conversations you have so it it is my pleasure to be here
0: well thanks so much Uh, so gendered capitalism is a a neat book when you explain it to strangers uh what do you say it's about and what were you trying to do with it
1: thank you that's a good question i usually talk about first about The women about and also about sewing and embroidery right uh because that was my Mm -hmm. initial um point of research or topic of research i was very interested in the lives um the economic lives but also the cultural and social lives of women that sew not only for um, market purposes for, uh, for uh to get income but also um just because right just because they mm-hmm. were uh, mothers, because they were grandmothers, <laughs> because they were girls, mm-hmm. uh, in in um in Spain and Mexico, so that was my initial um my initial point of entry. And um, when I started looking more into it, when I started graduate school, I realized um, that technology right, and the sewing machine uh, was very important for uh for all this variety of activities. So not only, ex- again, for women that had uh, sewing and uh, embroidery as, as their um, trade, but also for those that were uh, in the home. And the more I looked at, uh, at them, I I saw Singer, right? I saw Singer over and over, mm-hmm. and I saw Singer being in every home I looked at, but also going back very, um, very late. So the oldest, um, sewing machines I, I could see were always Singer and, um, uh, or how you, we say it in Spanish, La, la Singer. Um, uh-huh. and, uh, and so there, there were other brands, of course, but Singer was kind of the, also the term for sewing machine, right? So if I ask someone, do you have wow. a sewing machine? Oh yes, I do have a Singer. So it wasn't. Oh yes, uh-huh. I have a máquina de coser. No, I had a singer. So um, that uh, and of course then uh, being in graduate school at uh, Florida International U- University with uh, amazing scholars like uh, Ken Partito, who actually gave a talk uh in my in another class about sources and. I don't know if coincidentally he talked about sewing machines and I said, well, of course I have, I have to look at that. And then of course, Mira Wilkins, who was also teaching when, when I was in grad school. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think that, you know, so often historians of technology and business historians, they either start with the machine or they start with the firm, right? As their, their center of interest. But I think, and I think I saw this kind of come out in your acknowledgements, Mm -hmm. uh, section too, you really were interested in sewing and then kind of like you know b- backed yourself into the business history or something like that. is that right
1: That's right i mean i um again in graduate school i I understood and I learned how the firm is this kind of back structure that that kind of gives shape to all these um, I understood it as uh, giving shape to all these economic uh um activities um yeah. And in the also in the global uh, in the global um, economy, and that was very important to me. So I very rapidly understood how I had to look at the firm. I had to understand yeah. why um, sewing was such a global and um, and um, such a global activity, and also performed by women in in the places I was looking at. Um, I had to look at, to, under, to explain it, I had to look at the firm. I I, I needed yeah. <laughs> to see what the structure and who had managed that, um, uh, the organization for uh, for sewing.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I have a similar story in that. I did not expect I would be a business historian when I grew up. I, I thought it, I was wanted to be a professor, but I, business historian, but when you study capitalism and technology, firms are, you know, they're important, it turns out. When, when you're you're your early his, your early interest in sewing, were you were you kind of interested in a kind of like cultural history perspective, or how were you thinking about sewing early on?
1: Yes, I was definitely uh, looking uh, again uh, at um, women's work uh, perspective. Yeah. I was doing uh, as a as an undergrad and as an anime in, in Spain. Back in Spain, I did lots of courses on the history of women women's studies, Uh and one uh, of my um, advisors also at FIU was uh, Aurora Morcillo, who was a very important historian of gender and and women in Spain and about Spain. So for me, it was all about... But again, I wanted to... There was work uh, already done about this um, transition to industrial sewing and how the sewing machine had... uh, uh, made hundreds uh, of women and thousands of women of women go to the fab, to the factory and work uh, so for me, that was not the, the uh, my interest right I, I was more interested in that sphere and that space of the home uh, which yeah. had been really uh, on the margins of the studies of the firm for sure, but also yeah. Um, On was kind of a given, even in um, in labour history, right? So, so okay. So we know that there are women that, and there is this uh, gender ideologies uh, of domesticity that are there, but but we are but we are interested on the women that went out. (laughs) Uh, So I wanted to stay in and in the home (laughs) and kind of uh, bring the home up and and elevate it as a space where things happen but um mm-hmm. definitely as a space that can that gave back to the corporation and really structured the corporation yeah. in this in this case.
0: Yeah well I think you're you know do that very successfully. So I'm out well kind of spell out what the perspective you bring kind of does for business history as, as we go along. Um can you uh can you put Singer's history in context for us? So how you know not Singer's a very important company in the history of technology, you know, history of technology and business history, the history of mass production, like David Hounchel's book, From American System to Mass Production covers it, Chandler's Visible Hand. It's, a, you know, it's an important story, but not all of our, not all the listeners will be familiar with it. So can you could just kind of spell out a kind of brief history of how it kind of starts up and what it was up to initially?
1: Absolutely. So <clears throat> you're right. The, uh, the Singer sewing machine, uh company is a textbook right example of both yeah the um uh, the modernize the process of uh, modernizing the firm or the corporation in the uh, second half of the 19th century in the us uh, but also it's a textbook for a multinational uh for the it um, the idea of the multinational company and so so singer started um, was incorporated in eighteen sixty three in the United States so it 's headquartered in the United States and continues to be headquartered in the United States for over a century okay so after um the nineteen sixties there are some um movement towards, you know, it gets divided, and it gets sold, and still there are offices in, in, in the United States, but it's not what we see as the uh, very centralized, vertically integrated uh, corporation that it was. So in 1863, uh, it's incorporated, and by then, uh, Singer had lots of, um, of competition in the U.S. Uh, it yeah. had- you know the home sewing company. It had Howe Co- sewing company, uh, sewing yeah sewing uh, machines company. It had um, Wheeler and w- uh, Wilson, who which is actually acquired by Singer later on. So it's very much um, a part of a sewing industry that is booming in the United States. Uh, but starting in the eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies. Uh, it, it is the only corporation, it is the only company in the U.S. that it starts uh, going out, going abroad very uh, rapidly. So other companies are um, exporting sewing machines, right? And we have data on that. Um, and so they just export uh, like any other good. But um, the Singer sewing machine company opens a factory in um, in Scotland already by the 1870s and then it has other um factories operated directly by uh the u.s headquarters um in germany and then in russia at the end of the century of the 19th century um and again everything vertically integrated under one roof which is uh which is in new york and um -hmm. So it also has, uh, and this is very um, specific to Singer, is a very centralized and organized um, system of distribution. A system of distribution that is both salesmen, but also stores, right? So it's not only salesmen mm-hmm. going out, uh, knocking on doors and selling, uh, only, selling only Singer sewing machines, um, but also stores that are only Singer and that are staffed by only Singer employees that can only sell Singer. And why I say that is important because um, that gives Singer a lot of control in terms of yeah. marketing, in terms of, um, of um, also the message that they want to uh, convey with the sewing machine and their yeah. advertising. But also in terms of prices, in terms of how they sell the sewing machine, they could sell on credit, which others don't didn't really uh get to do or at least Mm -hmm. that much um because they could do it through their uh through other wholesalers right but not directly through through uh their their uh, company and um after the 19th century after uh, at the turn of the 20th century, Singer was already in more than 20 countries with this distribution system, not with the factory system. Right. So uh, that's yeah. one of the points uh, of my book: is that uh, we need to look more into other forms of um, of management, not only manufacturing, which is what uh, yeah. studies of uh, multinational corporations had focused on, uh, but also. Uh, about marketing and distribution because this really is what uh puts the corporation in contact with the consumer and in the case of Singer in contact with the local consumer, right? With
0: uh right.
1: <laughs> with those And
0: it's where women comes in too to to get back to where yes. we you know we started earlier. The, the manufacturing story can be kind of very male-dominated. It's a story of dudes setting up production and stuff. Not that, there's certainly women involved in the, that. But um, right. But if we look at your story, there's a lot more women involved, right? Yes.
1: Yes. And not always so visible, right? That's yeah. then why the idea, I mean, focusing on, on embroidery and sewing was so important because that's also the way I brought women in until I found yeah. them. <laughs> until I found them in yeah, the corporation. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah. because they one of the departments that um there were women working in the manufacturing side uh in the factories that were assembling um, yeah. making and assembling sewing machines, but they were mostly in the sampling um step. So at the end, when they had to uh, to try the the machines and see if they worked, um, that's where I I could um, document some, uh, women working within the factory. But yeah. um, within the distribution system and within the stores, they also were um, not so officially visible. Uh, but they were part. They, they were not so much sales. Women, right? They weren't going door to door, but they were part of the stores, right? Um, in every store, um, there had to be a woman, um, especially to do these demonstrations and uh, and to try to work the sewing machine with the customers. Uh, but also one very important um, part of my of my book is the exhibitions, right? And the exhibitions were could either be permanent or, or temporary. And these were events, um, that women prepared with, you know, um, kind of not just, um, the word doesn't come out, not just once, but they were always making samples, right. To show other people yeah, and they were making samples and applying embroidery or sewing with the machine to their domestic, um, tasks and when it came the time to have an exhibition, they would decorate they would, uh, they would prepare a, a nice showcase with all these these uh, objects so over time in ev- in mostly all country all the countries that singer was part of, um, they created these exhibitions and uh, that singer that women um, uh, organized and then um I was able to track uh to document the creation of the art department which is the embroidery department uh in the 1890s in the US uh, which mm-hmm. it was orga- it was created to organize the world um for the world's Colombian exhibition right so after that I don't have specific business records about the department anymore that's all that's all we have but we have yeah Proof that there were thousands of exhibits uh, in all the stores and uh, also international exhibits after that. So I assume they continued to work um, on that, you know, doing that organization. But then in each of the countries um, and specifically in Spain and Mexico, which I, I focused on, they had this these um departments they called or in Spanish uh in Spain for example it was called sección de bordados which is uh embroidery section embroidery unit and um they organized for um to decorate window fronts to um be part of uh exhibitions but also um with time more and more to have schools right as part of singers so they mm-hmm. had Singer schools were, um, and they provided the certifications that the government would require and things like that.
0: What it made me think of is now, uh, I think, you know, as a product of like consumer capitalism and devices of the last 30 to 40 years and electronics and computing and all this, people, you know, analysts have become very focused on like subcultures and fandoms and, Uh, all the activities that other people are doing that kind of generate sales and loyalties to products, right? And so part of what I was interested in 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 your writing about this is kind of that culture, uh, definitely, uh, you know, primarily organized by women, that's clear, of these exhibits and activities around the sewing machine and these activities, and how much of it was singer, you know, and singer leading it, or people... Mm -hmm. Versus just like you know, in these local spaces, you have all these people. This is what they do, right? Right? And, and so you know, I just wondered how how you ended up thinking about that balance of just like you know, like sub, you know, like culture subcultures of mm-hmm. of activities and technologies around these things.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. I kept when I was in grad school and writing my dissertation, which the book is really my dissertation. Um, I kept looking, I kept um, reading these books about, um, well, books like uh, Michael Aras or uh, Mona Domos about how corporations kind of dominate, right, um, mm-hmm. through technology uh, or kind of how the West or uh, industrial nations became to be on top because of technology or pro- progress and things like, or uh, prowess or things like that. But um, yeah. For me, it was really never like that. so So first, the people I could talk to, or when I saw um, documents about talking about the sewing machine, first, like you say, they didn't mention singer. Uh, if they were against the sewing machine, it wasn't singer. it was just the idea of uh, you know produce, having to produce more, putting women outside the home, things like that. but um I wanted to and it's, nice, it's good to see that you could read that in my book. Is it wasn't that powerful. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. wasn't yeah, exactly. that <laughs> What was important is yeah. that exactly that culture of sewing, that culture that, yeah. that those practices and values associated with sewing and embroidery and the home and mm-hmm. being part of. Um, these life cycle moments when you could sew something and make it special and make it and give it, you know, give it as a gift, that was much more important. And so even though the sewing machine perhaps was criticized because it, um, it undermined some previous skills, you know, that were, you know, um, handmade um, um, techniques, for example, hand techniques, they also didn't seem to get bothered by the idea that they could do the same with the sewing machine. Um, so yeah. um, so in that sense, for me, it was much more important to see how they integrated the sewing machine and how they um, understood. Um, so both of those ideas about the technology, both being a bad thing and both being a great thing, just lived side by side. And I could see yes. that constantly. And sometimes when I even, you know, when I asked people if they knew where uh, the singer sewing machine was based, like, you know, if it was a, a American an American corporation or not, they don't know. They think it's an it's a Spanish. They think it's, you know, it's not um so all these yeah. ideas also about um uh foreignness and uh reactions against you know that was that is very much part of literature or of um later literature about americanization and and things like yeah. that uh in europe um you don't see that with singer you don't see that mm-hmm. at all uh you see it in some cases like japan but it's later and it's because of labor disputes so it's you know um mm-hmm. that was very important for me to 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 uh, explain because sometimes um, that was also my way of giving agency to the women and the practices, right? Uh, it's not yep. always the overarching, the overreaching multinational uh, sometimes mm-hmm. <laughs> in this case.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it, rem- it co- to me, it connected to uh, my friends and colleagues who study technology in Latin America and other places like Fabian Prieto-Náñez, mm-hmm. who like looks at satellites and d- <laughs> Diana Montano does electrifying Mexico. I mean, when when we start to look at how local places adopt technologies, it becomes much different than this kind of absolutely. Uh, and and if we looked at Japan, what the story was there, we would find it has to do with local meanings and and con- contestations that were already there, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that would be the yeah. That's great. Can you say so? I wanted to back up kind of back up for a second and say, like, how did you come to? Um you know, look at Spain and Mexico, and you know what did you think focusing on the the two nations would get you, got you as an analyst
1: so that is mostly because of going back to the corporation right so uh singer started um the first place it goes out uh with a subsidiary is the u is the u k right but um with the distribution system it goes and also Canada. But with the distribution system, it also starts going uh, out through Mexi- to Mexico, right through the closers uh, in the border. But also, and so uh, in Europe, Spain was also a very early market. Um, so for for the sake of writing the history of the corporation abroad mm-hmm. and the history of this distribution system, both Spain and mexico uh, in the Hispanic market. Both Spain and Mexico were first and uh, and m- the most important markets um, in the Hispanic world. W- well into the twentieth century, right? So uh, then we see um, South America coming in very strongly, but it's more after the nineteen twenties that you know we can see um, a distribution system being. St- uh, developed and things like that in, in places like Argentina or or um Ecuador or or Peru. So not that the sewing machines or Singer didn't get there um until nineteen twenties, but the system of distribution I could not document it before that. Mm-hmm.
0: Um and the other thing I wanted to ask you about, just kind of in a kind of lit review, you know, kind of the literatures you're drawing on, is um, this. I'm going to mention it to you before we kind of got going. Um, is this notion of kind of mediated consumption? So uh, I mentioned uh, Carolyn Goldstein's "Creating Consumers" this is a really important book for me and has been for a long time, and I was just thinking about. You know, uh, you know, the relationship between firms and consumers, I, you know, I think that business historians have done a, a, a you know, been writing about this for 20 years, mm-hmm. 20 or 30 years at this point, or at some point. But I still think it's not a literature that's leaked out of that, of business history mm-hmm. into other areas and technology studies necessarily, uh, history of technology. So, yeah, I mean, how did you think about the firm's how did the firm build relationship to consumers in these different places?
1: Right. Um so what you said is actually even more is even more true for the case of multinationals, right? If we look at international mm-hmm. business history, this approach of trying to uh see how the multinational connects with uh with the consum- the consumer is very very um, lacking. <laughs> I don't know. Yes. I'm not <laughs> right. So definitely, there is not much done for the 19th century. Also, uh-huh. because there is not um, a lot of, uh, of firms, right, um, working. Yeah. Uh, I mean, operating uh, at the, at that time, or at least following the uh, the definition of the firm as you know, the, as the multinational. Following the definition of the multinational firm that Mira Wilkins or or Jeff Jones have have provided. But Uh when you look again at this marketing uh, um, operations, you can see that in reality, what you get is people from these places. Being part of the corporation, and I think that's yeah. where i um, that's how I wanted to portray singer in local markets because uh, yes the uh, the central uh, office in ciudad de mexico or the central office in Madrid was uh, staffed by men, and the main right. agent was you know a male agent that was directly Designated by New York or maybe London, um, but under him there was you know it, it was all the Spaniards and there's a lot of uh, of documentation about problems between uh, locals, uh, local agents, and and for example um, the general agent in in Mexico and there's also there were also lots of problems in the US. It's not it's not just Mexico or uh, or <laughs> Spain and um yeah. but this idea of of uh, you were asking about the consumer and the and the corporation mm-hmm. uh, I think focusing on the store, focusing on those selling, focusing on those mm-hmm. practices, you need to know how they got their materials, how they got access to to the technology how and mm-hmm. just thinking about the messages that th- and just thinking about the context in which, in which these selling agents wanted to connect to their customer uh, or, or the client is what gave me, you know, kind of sense of uh, that it's all about right, that relationship that you create with the yeah. last part of the production or, or the, with the chain, right? <laughs> Between the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, with the customer. So, um, what I was also, I have to say that, um, again, I was studying multinationals at a time, uh, when I was younger than, uh, when I started my PhD, um, I got very influenced by this notion of the corporation of specifically of the American corporation as being this really bad, (laughs) um, (laughs) organization that would destroy yeah. um destroy uh you know local markets destroy it would just become i mean come and just do whatever they wanted and this was you know the 90s and then the 2000s it was yeah, very yeah. Much, <laughs> yeah. seattle right. the battle exactly. in seattle right exactly. yeah exactly so, um <laughs> and i think i got you know being in spain and being you know in a country that is not super rich and um yeah and I got a lot of foreign influence right after the uh, transition to democracy. So those, yeah. you know, those kind of changes influence uh, me, my, my perspective on multinationals. But the more I look at how these organizations have to work in other countries, yes, they can have lots of obstacles with politics and governments. And, but when it comes to people, they have to work with them. <laughs> I mean, it's and yeah. and if 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 working with them means appealing with whatever ha- whatever has to be like if you know yeah. now it can be you know whatever Coca Cola is doing to make people drink Coca Cola. Well, that's already. I mean, they're they're doing it. They're actually making people being part of that uh, corporate culture, which is uh, and that kind of cultural practice. That is drinking soda, right? Um, so mm-hmm. that was definitely more what I was looking after um, when I was looking at sewing and uh, the different materials that were prepared about sewing and embroidery. You know, how how did these people make sense of, of a technology that, yes, was foreign, yes, was revolutionary, but indeed was going to be part and was going to make a lot of sense within their within their cultures
0: yeah that that, that part sets me up perfectly for my next question for you is it can you give us a sense of you know what um kind of the cultures of sewing and embroidery practices were in spain and, and mexico before the introduction because part of your point is that there's all these norms and ideals caught up around these practices and those norms and ideals are deeper than the the machine right mm-hmm. so what what was going on with sewing and right. embroidery already
1: yes and that's really important uh because and now i'm actually writing about machine embroidery and i'm seeing how this standardization and and homogenization of sewing practices and 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 patterns and designs it actually came before machine embroidery um mm,
0: beautiful <laughs> so, yeah, yeah
1: um so in my in the book i go back all the way to the 16th century uh because i could see how at that time when educators or christian you know moralists writing about what the proper um woman should do and how she should behave and how she should educate. Um, her daughters, um, they start mentioning sewing constantly. And so they say, you know, sewing is this very um, great activity uh, that makes mm. you uh, not be doing nothing. And at the same time, it, uh, it, you are being creative because you're mm. um, creating beautiful things. And it, um, and who knows? If you ever need it, you can actually sell your products. So you can actually be part of the market and uh, contribute to your household's um, um, income. And so mm-hmm. that happens in the... So it's very much linked to Christianity as well, to morality. It makes, you know, it's a moral thing to know. It's, it makes women honorable. It makes um, them be uh, constantly... Occupied on something yeah. that is going to create you know good uh, nice um, artistic products but also something representative of their place in society, which is as you know as uh, household managers or as yeah. women of the home and when you go um you know eighteenth century it it starts being that part where um that defines sewing as something as a skill that you could also uh, use for the market becomes even more important. Right. But it becomes important Mm -hmm. in the sense that, um, that you could do it in the home as well. Uh, so you don't need Mm -hmm. to be, um, um, to be part of this, uh, kind of grow, uh, growing, um, middle class, well, it's just middle class is just a big word for 19th century Spain, but, um, you know, the bourgeoisie and being part of that, uh, economic growth, you could actually do it from home. And still, if you didn't have to go out and work the sewing machine in the factory, you could still, uh, do it in the home. Yeah. So, um, reformers and, you know, and also education, um, Officers in the nineteenth century starts start also um, taking this uh, approach and start saying, well, if you're uh, going to educate car- girls, you have to include sewing because it's such mm-hmm. an it's, a, it's such a good activity for them. They make um, they you teach them um, a skill, but also you teach them that. Um, That they are part of the home because uh, you know at the end of the day, sewing and embroidery, you're gonna sew to decorate your home, or you're you're gonna sew to to decorate the clothes that you're gonna give uh, to your daughter who is getting married. So it's everything is all of the activities, all the practices, all the values kind of go back to this idea of the family of the home of you know uh, of this. Domesticity uh, that is so uh, much um, valued right uh, in the 19th uh-huh. century. So um, that goes uh, in the 19th century. And I could see how sewing kind of renovates itself (laughs) and so it it was a very good thing for aristocratic women in the 16th century it becomes a really good thing for all social um for the entire social spectrum in the uh, 19th century uh because also for those going to the factory at least you're sewing right um is something that will also uh allow you to to get uh income or or be but then in the 20th century when we see more the ideals about the independent women and the new women uh modern women and you know things it it also it, it's okay as well because it uh it not only represents the home but it represents um so then it becomes kind of the uh a sign or um a model for the independent woman because they can do they can be by themselves they can get their own business they can be entrepreneurs with sewing and in the house <laughs> in the home. Mm-hmm. so it's all um, it kind of renovates up, yeah. but still persists uh you know in this idea of in this relationship to the home and and domesticity and uh, the way i finished my book is that you know we see this in 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 current, um, in modern firms, in modern, uh, so Etsy, for example, kind of (laughs) goes back to that idea, right? Uh, there, Mm -hmm. there's this, um, emphasis on this, um, celebration of the home and of doing it yourself, um, as part of other ideas of, uh, independent entrepreneurship or, um, being by yourself or i mean just you know or single sing um uh creating your own business and things like that.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think you put it at a, at one point you said something like that you know women had their own dreams. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And that does yeah, the sewing machine happened to fit into the way they were dreaming about their lives <laughs> and their futures.
1: Right. I have another section that is, you know, this idea and connects to the corporation as um, I mean, what they, what we were talking about Americanization and corporations being overreaching or not is, you know, yeah. mo- um, Spaniards had these expectations and dreams to be modern. So why not? Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. uh, we tend to see other cultures as original cultures and, and, you know, they, but perhaps that's not the case in, you know, perhaps there is the, that's the case in a lot of aspects, but, you know, in terms of capitalism and how it has worked, um, you know, with, with um, less developed nations, you know, whether it surprises us or not, (laughs) that's, you know, it's okay. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Again, I think we have
0: to study how people in these places, uh, how their dreams worked, you know, and that uh, they're off, they're often different than American dreams, but that doesn't mean they don't involve these very modern technologies. Right? Exactly. You know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Julio yeah. Moreno puts it very well in his book, right? Um, don't junkie, don't go home. I mean, not because we yeah. think that that traditions get undermined, which they probably do. Um, sure. Doesn't mean that there is a good. Uh, you know, part of the population that actually wants to.
0: (laughs) Yeah, totally. I heard you earlier, like, you know, Singer's this very important multinational in this earlier period, you know, and has much more reach than so many other companies, Mm -hmm. including the early auto companies, you know, I mean, they're they're just so much more reach than these firms. Um, So, uh, you know, how did Singer initially move into spain and mexico mm-hmm. and i was also hoping as you explain that i mean you know if it's helpful to do it in two parts whatever but i'm also interested in this notion of collective entrepreneurship mm. which it was the first time i bumped into it but i found it very helpful so i was hoping you could talk a bit about it
1: yeah absolutely um so <clears throat> singer enters the first singer store in spain i could um i have a uh source for is 1873 and it's a store in Sevilla and that is it is so Seville or Sevilla is in the south of Spain it's very Mm -hmm. it was very surprising to me and it is is still very surprising to me that that I have not found one store earlier than that in Madrid but you know that's what it is Uh, so there might have been but I haven't found the document for it Um, But before that, uh, so that's super early, right? Uh, Before that, and perhaps around that time, Singer sewing machines would be sold in larger um, wholesalers. They would sell other machines as as well. They would sell also German sewing machines and Uh they would sell Uh uh, other American um, um, sewing machines. The same thing happened in... um, In Mexico, but in Mexico is it is a little different because they Singer kind of made a uh, well they made a contract with Casa Boker, which was a wholesaler, Um, and they and Casa Boker actually agrees with Singer to only sell Singer sewing machines. Okay, Um, but of course Singer could not control whether or not other wholesalers could. Sell so their machines uh-huh. somewhere else uh-huh. um so in Mexico, singer stays with Casaboca for a long time at the same time it has um it has is it starts opening its own stores uh to try to control the market a little bit more and um it starts um and also it sells machines through the border uh you know through the office in San Antonio, and you know. There's not a clear line between, at the beginning, between what, uh, you know, where the stores, where the sewing machines were sold uh, in the kind of northern part of Mexico. And, you know, this is 1860s, yeah. 1870s. It's, it's still okay. very, very close to, to, the, to the war, to the war between uh, the, United, the United States and Mexico. Um, but mm-hmm. in Spain, very early, the company... It starts opening stores and um, starts not selling to those wholesalers and actually looking for wholesalers that are selling Singer's sewing machines and telling them not to do so. Um, by the 1890s, um, in both countries, with the entry of President uh, Frederick Burn of, uh, of Singer, they, uh, both countries, along with other countries, have uh, this. Mandate, I guess, from the United States that only Singer can sell singers, uh-huh. um, and that's what happens since 1892 or three. Um, Casa Boker no longer has this loyal loyalty agreement with Singer, and Singer starts opening what they call in Mexico are encargadurías, which are not. Depots, but kind of bigger offices look so not the central okay. office, but kind of under the central office. And they open encargadurias in almost every state. Um, and then each encargaduria would have, uh, perhaps seven, depending on, on how much, uh, how high, um, how large the population of that area would be. They would have either three stores or more stores or. But in, uh, the same thing happened in Spain. And um, but what was very important in both countries uh, was this, the, the figure of the selling agent. They would be the ones going to the more rural locations. Yeah, yeah. And in both in both countries, the amount of sales um, that were registered before the turn of the twentieth century really surprised the, um, the executives, they said, they write in their correspondence that it is just amazing how well sales are going given that both, you know, both Spain and Mexico are considered really poor countries. Like there's not enough income in these countries in their view to really buy this, um, this expensive technology but by that th- by that time um the technology was not that expensive anymore but also um this uh system of leasing which consisted consisted of a contract um by which the client or the purchaser would pay every week um and i have calculated it took between 1 and 2 years to pay for it uh depending on how much you know money uh the the first payment would have been um this had a lot of uh of um it attracted a lot of lots of purchases and clients in both uh countries the um the leasing um the installment payments um option so by then um that's you know by then the system is created and after that um It kind of never changed much. It just stayed with the stores, the uh offices and uh neither country had um had a factory um in their Uh history, uh which didn't happen with places like Brazil or Argentina, both both uh countries uh in the twentieth century Brazil and later in the twentieth century Argentina. Although the case of Argentina, I don't know if it's a manufacturing factory or it's an assembling factory. So uh, I'm not 100% 100% sure but um in neither spain nor mexico um singer created a, i mean opened a factory in its history
0: hmm. um we we talked a bit before about um that you know you mentioned that there was in 1890s there was a form of this art department um or later it's also called the embroidery department yeah. it seems to be called And then later it's renamed the education department. Um, What what do you feel like, what did focusing on this organizational unit or this set of activities kind of allow you to see in this story?
1: Well, so um, that was for me kind of the... View of this idea of the gendered corporation right uh we tend to think about um cor- big organizations or corporations in this case kind of emanating effects <laughs> like uh, yes. um let me let me explain <laughs> right. myself like um perhaps you know there is a a big um effect on gender practices there's a, a big effect yeah. on labor there's a big but what about back to the corporation and, and the feedback
0: mechanism exactly right, exactly so that's yeah. also
1: that's how I see this I mean the way or the perspective or the view that these departments uh, gave me and um, and when I looked at this department so the art department that was also randomly called the embroidery department, uh, then becomes the education department. And it, and the education yeah. department doesn't forget about embroidery, right? They continue right, 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 right. to teach about embroidery. They print all these manuals with embroidery designs yeah. and instructions. And, um, so it continues, but is what I was saying before is this domesticity and gender, um, norms being part of the corporation that's where i saw that that evolution of from being industriousness to being the uh, independent um woman that's where i saw Mm -hmm. it within the corporation as well yep um no it's really pretty mm -hmm. go ahead and then i also wanted to um make uh, kind of go back to your earlier question about collective entrepreneurship. And um, that was a concept I read about um, in the work of Christina Lubinsky, specifically, and Dan Wadani. Uh, This idea, you know, for me, within the corporation was the uh, kind of the locals kind of taking over the system that Singer was able to provide (laughs) and making it their own you know kind of um dream right what's like we were talking about before because owning um or not owning but but because it's not a franchise a fran, is it franchise or franchise it's not a franchise really uh because the person that was manager of a store never owned that store right um it didn't even have an agreement to kind of do what, no, they were employees of Singer. Um, yeah. But it's still, uh, the way I see them, uh, you know, talking about the store, talking about Singer, talking about being part of a corporation, I see them as their own um, project. Right.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, and they're caught up, right? I mean, you can almost think of a, you know, and for many of these people, you can think of the sewing machine as a kind of capital good. Mm-hmm they're doing their own thing. They're making objects sometimes for the market or just for themselves. And it's caught up in all these local activities, right? Mm -hmm. That are business beyond the firm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and, but there's also these feedback mechanisms into the company. So I think I see the collective entrepreneurship thing. Mm -hmm. Yes. Singer's there. It's a dealership. It's not a franchise. Mm -hmm. And yet it's really caught up in this collective set of local activities that that is kind of much richer than just this vision of like, yeah, the, the top-down yes. corporation like shooting things out at people and like <laughs> influencing them or something like that, right?
1: Yeah, which is also like this very male disseminating, <laughs> you know? Um, it is I... so
0: male. It's, it's a very male vision. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, My unfortunate hand gestures there was, yeah.
1: <laughs> I did too. have Yeah. Those. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah yeah and so you know can i also just kind of can you kind of give me a a sense of like um so you know part of this collective entrepreneurship thing going on is there's all these creation manuals Mm -hmm. again which some of them would have been coming from singers some of them would have been coming from other places Mm -hmm. and there's these exhibits Mm -hmm. and contests organized (laughs) i mean there's all these activities right so can you give us a sense of like what an exhibit was like i mean did you ever find images or Mm -hmm. just descriptions of what what were what were these exhibits like just to give people a
1: yes that's a great question um so yes there's a lot of images and i'm gonna take this moment to talk about sources because at some point when i started research uh and actually when i finished my dissertation i did not know about these source, which is a marketing, public relations kind of publication by Singer, but it was only published in the UK. And so I didn't know about it. Um, I had talked to scholars that were very well known and that knew about Singer and they said, no, no, Wisconsin Historical Society has everything, in you know, Mm -hmm. um, organization related. Well, it turns out um, I was doing a postdoctoral uh, fellowship in Berlin and I had two weeks of research time in Glasgow. I wanted to go to Glasgow and see what was left of the uh, huge, absolutely enormous factory um, setting that Singer had built in the uh, 1880s, 1870s, 1880s, and um and then, which was destroyed by by now, I mean, it's, it's it this doesn't exist anymore. But um, when I went there, I went to the local library and I said, "Do you have anything about Singer?" And they said, "Sure, we have. Let me let me count mentally. We have, let's say, forty volumes <laughs> of this public relations marketing magazine that was fed by." The different offices around the world and uh that were sending images and pictures and text about their operations and also but it was mostly focused, you know perhaps half of the publication was British, and then the rest was foreign yeah. um so well, then those two weeks, that's all I did. I was I just took pictures, <laughs> pictures, pictures <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, but it was wonderful because that actually mm-hmm. uh, you know kind of Mm. presented me with that view that we were talking about, like there was a real system. There was a real organization Mm. within Singer, uh, which was not, which is definitely not part of the official, or at least the kind of written business record that I had uh, researched in the Wisconsin, at the Wisconsin Historical Society, which is where um, Singer archives are, the Singer archives are. And so, um, there i could see all these activities there were little exhibits and large exhibits these exhibits mm-hmm. were um perhaps what we would you know um the size it could go from the size of a kitchen a small kitchen to the size of mm-hmm. a big house and usually what they put on display was um a small accessories or objects that had been of course made with a sewing machine but they were all they were all like home um like objects right so there were pillowcases Mm -hmm. there were cushions there were curtains there were tablecloths there were if Mm -hmm. there was if there were dresses and things like that mostly there were they were um like doll Size, right? Um,
0: okay.
1: <laughs> um, there were um, napkins. That uh, it's just like all you can think yeah, yeah, yeah. that you can give as a gift, you know, to the newborn or to the newlyweds. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's on that side. All those objects usually came from the stores, which um, were actually on exhibit permanently on their window fronts or even you know, inside the store. Um and then these um concursos or um contests, they uh-huh. I saw those more uh frequently for uh, for South America. So uh-huh. Uh-huh. singer schools would have courses and so at the end uh-huh. of one of these courses the girls would um the students which were girls uh-huh. would um exit would um display their what they had done during that course, and so there were contests yeah. that were also sponsored by the government and um mm-hmm. or by public schools and and things like that these contest so all these um exhibitions were mostly focused on embroidery i even though mm-hmm. there is a big push for dressmaking and schools mm-hmm. um for especially in the US are mostly for dressmaking, um this kind of put uh to show are mm-hmm. usually embroidery. They're not so much um, you know, um mm. the result of of uh dressmaking. Mm
0: so and do you have a do you have a sense of why that is i mean was it just embroidery became a space of hmm. um contest or it was just an established genre or something so
1: embroidery i um was in the set, was really inter- it, when i look at it more in the in more practical terms it's kind of the introduction to any sewing right so yeah you
0: can, right
1: sure you can the first the stitches you always you're really making embroidery it's just a stitches. Yeah. if you give it a design the then it's, it's yep pretty, you know it could be considered art or creative or but um so yeah. i that could be one reason the other reason is perhaps dressmaking um was more uh part of vocational schools but also kind of higher level like if you were really Mm -hmm. into it and was going to uh and you were going to work as part of a um department store or you were going to create your own business as a dressmaker then so it's much more uh you know that i'm not entirely sure but uh, i think that's you know you could show also this side this artistic side more Yes. Purely with embroidery than, than with, um, yeah. plus that kind of home feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> well, my daughter's been taking, uh, my nine-year-old daughter's been taking sewing classes recently, yeah. making doll clothes, just as you said. And,
1: uh,
0: mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think that I was just kind of reading it through that experience. and I can definitely see how this become a kind of space of achievement. And uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know concepts of self and such.
1: Is she sure. is she using the sewing machine? Is she using a sewing yeah, machine? Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't been able to really master it at all. I you can, I know how to use it, but I am not good at it. Um, and recently, I am yeah. taking on um, embroidery, and it's much easier. Okay. Um, but it's also, it's yeah, it's very. I mean, it's easier to do what I'm doing, which is not. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing yeah. super intricate or, or special.
0: Your last chapter is titled uh, Female Economies in the Era of Global Capitalism. And I saw you kind of a, trying to achieve like a couple different ends in that. So I just want to, you know, what, give listeners a sense of like some of the things you're trying to do there as you, you bring the book. It's the last chapter before the conclusion. So yeah. what were you trying to do there?
1: Um <clears throat> I think my uh main point in that um in that chapter is that after decades of uh you know making this relationship between home and sewing and embroidery um even though domesticity ideas ideals change um they continue to inform uh these practices of sewing and so sew, um but it's also about politics so when you know when Political changes happen in both countries, um, and they especially that chapter talks about Mexico because Spain would be a little later with the Spanish Civil War and the um, beginning of the dictatorship. Um, is that they also try to modernize what it is to be, a, you know, the definitions of uh, women in, in the modern era. And when they do, they keep this relationships right they keep the idea that women are better at home um, home related activities that um, following uh, ideologies of domesticity which you know which um, could mean which they could relate also could also be related to independence and and the modern woman um, in the case of Mexico, that chapter talked about the idea of the modista in casa or sewing uh, at home as both being part of um, political ideologies that emphasize Catholic um, values uh, about, mm-hmm. you know, the, home, the about women being uh, still part of the home and being uh, and needed. To be part of the home, but also more left-wing um ideologies uh-huh. that start to to erase, especially in the after the 1920s in 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 Mexico, uh, but also in this case in Spain in the nineteen twenties and thirties, although then it's going to be kind of um um deleted by the dictatorship. But you could see also in the dictatorship how sewing and this idea of domesticity is just Mm -hmm. going to revive again, you know, have um Mm -hmm. leave a revival once again. Uh so my goal is to is in that chapter is to show how it is so it's such a malleable um ideology but also set of values and virtues that Sewing in the home can provide to these bigger um, ideologies of gender that in both Spain and Mexico are going to kind of change in the 1920s and 30s, very much linked with changes in politics and changes in regimes. Um, And in both places, both uh, magazines and Singer and uh, schools, they continue there is a continuity of um this promotion of sewing either for independence but also for um kind of keeping that uh traditional mm-hmm. um norm or traditional set of um values that that uh women would have um bear in you know with more traditional ideologies of domesticity
0: yeah yeah no i love it i mean that's another way you're kind of challenging the the literature is because it's just like you know i think we when you look at the 20th century and sewing and clothing and all these things it's always about mechanization and you know the rise of like pre-made stuff and you know these lives we lead and eventually it goes to fast fashion and all this stuff but it's like you know, I think you're challenging, uh, you know, that that simple vision of linear change, because it's like, well actually, like these, these visions, they stick around for all kinds of reasons and become important. Right. At, at different moments.
1: I see them know? as very fluid. And, you know, if for for one set of uh, one sector of the population or they mean, you know, morality and and. All sorts of virtues related to the home and the home and as this uh, super, uh, as a sanctuary, right? Uh, But for the other sector of society, um, those that want to, you know, to be, you know, those women that um, went to vocational, vocation, you know, to their, um, Mm -hmm. to school, to trade schools, to be, to have their own businesses or to just work uh, or or, uh, know more skills. They also, you know, it also works for right. them, right? So, right, um, right, there is this book skills. about, right, there is this book about, um, by, <laughs> okay. It's okay. uh, it's called Patriarchy Reinventing Patriarchy. Um, let me, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, about Brazil, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the structure. I will, I will find the book and, and let you know. Uh, it, and it's about mm-hmm. how it gets. You know reinvented um over time, but still uh-huh. you know at the end of the day, we see the um, we see the same power and hierarchy um you know being enforced, which is you know uh-huh. um, women's place in 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 business and in work and in society as you know as not equal mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
0: Um I know that you're doing you do a lot of different things uh and so I would understand if you don't have time to think about this right now but is there a next historical project for you or do you know where you go where you would go next
1: uh <clears throat> So as you know, I'm not uh I'm not part of a history department as a tenure track um mm-hmm. professor. So I don't have the pressure of <laughs> jumping yeah. into another project. But I'm yeah. still very uh, you know, I'm very interested in um in in business history, in international business history. And I'm very interested in this relations that happened between the corporations and society. Mm-hmm. And so um that's where I am heading. I'm also very interested and i don't see lots of research coming out about it about gender and multinationals. I still don't see right. um you know developments into into um knowing why there is still perhaps uh uh a, a difference and uh in you know in the role of women in business or perhaps a difference between i mean um, uh, a gap uh, a gender gap in within corporate boards and things like that I am interested in knowing why historically, historically why it's that um, and uh-huh. I think in terms of of uh, um, using gender to analyze um, kind of how historically those hierarchies um, you know, have been there uh, will help us actually know how we can tackle uh, the hierarchies and the differences that still define, mm-hmm. you know, the corporate world and 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 business.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the many things you do, which I think really is important, is that you're the co-editor of and chief of of the. New Books Network podcast, uh, New Books Network in Espanol, right? Mm-hmm. And so, can you give can you give listeners a little sense of what that is? And yeah, yeah, tell us about it.
1: Yeah, so New Books Network in Espanol is part of the New Books Network, uh, which I started being a host a few years ago. I thought it was an incredible um, initiative, and uh, its editor, Marshall Poe, really provides. Um, a, an amazing opportunity for a lot of people, not only as scholars, to kind of put um, a scholarship and a scholarly work out there, um, but also for a kind of a more general audience. And yeah. so when I uh, began, I thought, how, you know... Um, there has to be, some, there wasn't anything like it in Spanish. And so I directly approached the editor and I asked him if uh, if he would be interested in doing it. And he was, he was right away very interested. And um, it's been almost two years. Uh, we don't have, like, I think New Books Network has over 500 hosts. We do not have 500 hosts, but we have around 100, which is very good um
0: wow that's great yes that's and so great.
1: you sh- and actually it's very interesting because the uh our mm. larger audience is in the u.s <laughs> so um really yes even mm. though so spain is also in you know there is mm. it's very high uh but on mexico and um and japan for some reason <laughs> there must be okay, yeah. a big uh hispanic yeah, yeah. um community there but or uh mm-hmm. So, but we do exactly the same as, as New Books Network in Español. We um, encourage posts to interview um, scholars that have just published uh, mm-hmm. academic books. And also we are doing uh, fiction and non-fiction, uh, more trade okay. books. And um, cool. yeah, it's going well. And I invite everyone to listen to it that uh, understands the Spanish to listen to it and contributed.
0: <laughs> it's wonderful. You know, I'm, I've been thinking about it a lot in kind of terms of global technology studies. And, you know, like I said, I have colleagues who kind of work on that space.
1: Well,
0: mm-hmm. I'm thinking about how we need, uh, you know, more and better platforms for having those conversations and getting word out about that work. But I think part of that has to be doing podcasts in other language you know mm-hmm. and and to make them build those connections so hats off to you and your colleagues for doing
1: it yeah thank you and you know i i, I don't know i i saw this number but in about two decades um perhaps the population that speaks spanish in the u.s is going to be <laughs> over <Yeah. laughs> the, the publication that
0: this does not phase me or bother me at all i'm like bring it on sounds good exactly. i'll try so, to play catch up
1: <laughs> these kind of projects yeah. are yeah
0: they're important
1: mm-hmm. paula
0: thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today
1: thank you thank you lee it's been my pleasure
0: you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. You can reach us with questions, comments, and suggestions at LeeVinsel at gmail.com or by following me on Twitter at STS underscore news or on YouTube at People's Things. Our podcast is distributed by the New Books Network, the leading platform for academic podcasts so that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Peoples and things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother, Jake Vinsel, for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy, Juliana Castro, for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Joe Fort is the producer for the podcast, and Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. This podcast and other peoples and things programming are produced in affiliation with Virginia tech publishing and supported by the center for humanities and the university libraries at Virginia tech for information about other podcasts from Virginia tech publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu for the entire peoples and things team. I am Lee Vinsel and most importantly, I want to thank you for listening. Thanks.